In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about the evil hidden in the dark places. You may have noticed lately that we've been featuring illustrations from some artists new to our team. I've been remiss in introducing them, so I want to bring them to your attention. This week's illustration is by Emily Cannon. Emily is a full-time illustrator with a BFA in illustration from the Rhode Island School of Design. She currently lives in the ever-changing weather vortex that is Colorado Springs, where she's illustrating her first graphic novel and a collection of tarot cards. Last week's illustration was created by artist Kelly Turnbull. Kelly is an LA-based board artist, writer, and comic smith, whose work you may have seen on some Cartoon Network shows. She's originally from Canada, which is all the more reason to love her work. And also new to the show this year is artist Audrey McAvoy. Hmm, McAvoy, where have I heard that name before? Anyway, Audrey is an illustrator and resident of Arizona. She has done extensive work on video game graphics and illustrations. She was raised on a healthy dose of goosebumps and tales from the crypt, so it was natural for her to apply her horror fixation to her illustrations. So we are grateful for the talent our new illustrators are sharing with us. And it's nice to see our new rule of only accepting illustrators with first names ending in Y is working out. Thank you, Emily, Kelly, and Audrey, and welcome to our team. So with the sights looked after, it's time for us to bring the sounds. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we meet a man who works for a couple who buy up properties and remodel them. I think we're all familiar with the intriguing, mysterious, and sometimes terrifying things you can find in old abodes. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jeremiah Dylan Cook, When our handyman finds a treasure box, he's a little disappointed to discover a mere journal inside of it. I join Addison Peacock, Kyle Akers, Atticus Jackson, and Mike Delgadio in performing this tale. But as the old adage goes, never judge a book by its cover. The innocuous tome recovered from under the floorboards may well contain dark secrets and untold horrors. At least when it's the house-flipping find.
Hey, usually I'm not one for sharing on the internet. I only have a Twitter that I use to follow LeBron, but I needed to get this story off my chest. People might not think this story is real, but that's good. The fewer people that investigate this, the better. My story began a week ago when I found the thing that's doomed me. You see, I do a lot of work for this couple who flips homes in the area. My region of northeastern Pennsylvania has tons of cheap houses that they can buy low and sell a little higher for profit. New Yorkers looking to get out of the city are the biggest suckers for the authentic mountain views. Anyway, one day I'm tearing out some cheap tile in the basement when I uncover the edge of an old wooden box. The thing looked ready to fall apart, and a little piece of me thought there might be some kind of treasure in it. A guy I worked with found a perfectly preserved copy of Action Comics Number 1, where Superman first showed up. The guy ended up retiring on that. So I hid the box from everyone else at the work site. I know, I know, it seems a little greedy, but would you want to split a million bucks if you didn't have to? So I got the box to my apartment that night. Someone had put an old lock on it, but the thing was so rusted, I managed to knock it off with one good hit from my hammer. My anticipation of treasure only grew, but when I lifted the worn-out hinges, I only found a plain leather book wrapped in cloth. Paging through it slowly, I realized it was a personal journal. I couldn't think of how to make any cash off it unless someone famous wrote it. The first page squashed my hopes, though. It listed the owner's name as Ursula Schmidt. I did a quick web search but couldn't find anyone of note. Disinterested in the journal at this point, I figured I'd donate it to the local library. They always need books, from what I hear. That night, something odd happened. I didn't even consider the book and the event might be linked until later, but I'm sure they were. So as I tried to sleep that night, I heard scratching on my roof. I figured it must be squirrels or birds, but the noise woke me from a sound sleep around midnight. I did manage to get back to sleep pretty easily, though. The noise didn't last long. I was off work the next day, and by noon I'd already tired of Xbox and couldn't decide on a show to watch amongst my four streaming apps. The journal lay on my coffee table, so I turned off the TV and lay back with it. I couldn't remember the last time I read anything. Maybe it hadn't been since high school? Anyways, here's what it said. August 5th, 1792. Papa and Mama are both gone now. The doctor told me that the bullet Papa took in the War of Independence must have finally reached his heart. They never could get the thing out. Mama got sick right after he passed. She started coughing up blood one evening and was cold as ice the next. The doctor suggested I move out of our house in the woods and into town. He even suggested I live in the small room next to his office. Every person in 10 miles knows that is where he has his mistresses live. Why his wife puts up with it, I do not know. Perhaps I will feel different in the winter, but for now, I cannot imagine parting with the place I have lived my whole life in. Papa built this house right after he arrived from Deutschland. My inheritance allows me to live freely, for now. August 10th, 1792. I awoke to a frightful rapping on my door tonight. When I answered it, I met John Parsons on my front porch. 
He looked like the devil lapped at his heels, but I could see no one outside beside him. Ursula, you have to let me in. I am a Christian woman, and I do not allow men who are not of my blood to stay the evening with me. It's going to get me if you don't let me in. Had his demeanor not been so frantic, I probably would have told him to move along. But he genuinely seemed scared of whatever he had encountered in the woods. I thought that a wolf might be prowling around. Papa shot one nearby only a few days before he passed. Is it wolves? Parsons nodded like crazy and began forward without waiting for my consent. But I did step aside to let him in. Yes, wolves. It's wolves. I bid him get comfortable in my front room while I locked myself in the bedroom. That is where I am writing by candlelight. I wonder what my parents would make of this if they were here. I know they would not judge my decision harshly, but I hope the townsfolk will not begin to whisper that I am impure behind my back. I thought I heard that wolf prowling around outside. It must have been huge to scare Mr. Parsons. Well, thankfully, we are safe in the house for tonight. Now I must get some rest to handle whatever tomorrow brings. August 11th, 1792. Lord, help me. I awoke due to a cool breeze from my window this morning, but I did not remember opening it last night. My fear of the wolf would not allow such a thing despite the sweltering heat of the last summer days. I found the door from my bedroom wide open as well. Had Mr. Parsons played me for a fool? If so, I thought I had been awfully lucky to have been unmolested by the man in the night. When I walked into my front room, I found a scene like nothing I have yet witnessed in my 16 years of life. Mr. Parsons lay on the floor where he had intended to sleep, but his body was wrong, all wrong. He had been a young man of 22 when I left him last night. Now, he looked older than anyone I ever saw. His skin was shriveled up and grayed. There did not seem to be a hint of blood left in him. I might have assumed he died of some strange disease if it was not for the single large hole in his neck. It reminded me of Papa's old bullet wound. I am gathering my things and heading into town. I need help to understand what happened here last night. August 11th, 1792. So much has happened today. The walk to town took a half hour, and I kept glancing about for any sign of the wolf that might have pursued Mr. Parsons last night. I brought my papa's musket with me, but I have never been adept at shooting it. Unless I could have killed the beast in one shot, it would have gotten me for sure when I needed to reload it. Even Papa couldn't get the powder and lead ball lodged into the barrel very fast. Thankfully, I made it to Hazel Peak without incident. In Europe, my Papa told me they have towns that span as far as the eye can see, but this one only goes four buildings in every direction. Most people live further out in the woods on farmlands like my Papa and Mama. It seemed to me that folks in the town gave me suspicious looks as I made my way to John Barnabas's home. He heads the local militia, and my papa served with him in the war. On his deathbed, 
Papa told me to go to him if I needed any help after he was gone. Mr. Barnabas welcomed me into his home politely, and I provided him with my tale from the previous evening. His face seemed to drain of blood as I described Mr. Parsons' neck wound. Then he began backing away from me. You need to leave now. But what shall I do about the body in my home? Whatever you like. I don't think it matters much. He would not answer any further questions from me, and when I tried to approach him, he backed away quickly. I went straight across town to Pastor Edgar. His reaction to my story was similar to Mr. Barnabas's, but he didn't shoo me right out the door. Instead, he told me a story that chilled me to the core. Pastor Edgar stood at the front of his church, behind the small wooden altar my family donated. You should not have let Mr. Parsons over your threshold. You'll be damned for it, unless... Unless what? Did Mr. Parsons touch you when he entered your residence? I struggled to recall for a long moment. He may have. The priest's gaze left me to stare at the floor. I don't know where it comes from, but I can only assume the beast is in league with the devil. It only comes at night, and it's been seen in these woods since before Hazel Peak was founded. Some say it's a curse left by the Lenape, but natives passing through the area were the first ones to warn me about the creature. What they called it sounded like Mwangkwam and the translator told me the name roughly corresponded to blood creature. Once you have touched a person it marked, you will be hunted until... Tell me. I can handle the truth. Until your end is the same as Mr. Parsons. After that, he bid me take a cross for whatever protection it could provide and leave to avoid spreading the curse to others. Walking home... I struggled to recall if Mr. Parsons had truly touched me. My memory was incredibly hazy on the subject. It was just as possible that he grazed my shoulder as he did not. I barricaded my homestead as best as possible when I returned. The windows are shuttered, and the heat is now stifling. I moved my bed into the pantry, where it would stop the door from opening. This is the safest I think I can make myself. Unfortunately, it is sweltering in here. The candlelight adds to the already disgusting temperature. I must soon cease writing. I hope that in the morning I will feel foolish for taking this precaution. Maybe there will be no noises or horrors at all. August 12th, 1792. This morning has brought me joy. Nothing woke me once I had drifted off to sleep in the pantry. When I emerged this morning, nothing in the house looked amiss. I had a great laugh about the entire ordeal. <laughs> August 12th, 1792. My relief proved to be momentary. When I ventured outside to gather wood, I came across great scratches upon the sides of the house. They were three in number, and the depth of the strikes spoke to a startling length of the creature's claws. I also discovered many more scratches around the windows, but the shutters had held against the assault. 
I must have been too insulated in the pantry to hear the noises. August 12th, 1792. I spent most of the day trying to decide if I should sneak back into town. Maybe whatever has my scent would not come for me in the midst of so many people. But I also fear to do harm to my neighbors. They are too cowardly to help me, but I am unsure if I would do any different if our roles were reversed. In the end, I decided to spend another night barricaded inside the pantry. Perhaps it will grow tired of trying to get at me and move on. August 13th, 1792. Last night brought more destruction to my home. Papa would weep to see it in such condition. Whatever hunts me broke one of the shutters open. Once it got inside, it seemed to crash into every piece of furniture we own. I awoke to the sound of Mama's cherished dishes crashing to the ground. It was not long until a scratching came to the pantry door. The thought of what I might have seen trying to get under the bottom of the door, if I had been brave enough to light a candle, brings me to tears. <laughs> what will I do? August 13th, 1792. I nearly lost myself in devastation this morning, but I have risen above my base fears and grief this afternoon. Thoughts of Papa's war stories inspired me to a new course of action. I spent many a winter's day listening to his tale about the attack on Trenton, the fear of the Hessian soldiers, and the ultimate knowledge that all he could do was press on in the face of his potential death. George Washington and Thomas Mifflin led their men to victory on that day. And while I do not have such noble allies, I do have my papa's willpower. I will not die waiting for this beast to find me in a pantry cowering in fear. August 13th, 1792. All my preparations have been completed. I have left a good amount of black powder under the window with the broken shutters. I trailed a small line to the doorway where I will hide and add a flame to the powder when I see my hunter. If that fails, I have loaded Papa's rifle and I found his flintlock pistol as well. I will have two shots at it if I am careful. Lastly, I have Papa's pitchfork. He told me he had once skewered a charging boar with it. I can only hope he was not telling me a tall tale. I do not expect the house to survive the fight. As such, I have set all my money and some valuables in a trunk outside. I plan to wrap this journal up and lock it in a small box after I finish this entry. I will leave the key on top. That way, there will be a record of my life. And if someone comes looking for me, they'll find it. I am praying that I will be able to add another entry in the morning. That was the last page. Part of me wondered if my co-workers had managed to pull a joke over on me. No way this was real, right? I planned to bring the subject up at work the next day, but I never made it. That night, I was drifting to sleep when I heard glass shatter downstairs. Now I'm no wuss, so I grabbed my baseball bat and headed toward the sound. At the bottom of the steps, I spotted... Well, I, I don't know what... 
It had a long, tentacle-like neck. Instead of a head, there was a giant, bony needle that echoed suction-like sounds. Behind its back were insectoid wings. It walked on two legs, but but six rib-like appendages stuck out of its body. They opened and closed. In an instant, my brain filled in this picture. Those things were for holding prey tight while it drank from them with its needle neck. A small slit opened in its chest with a squishy pop and out shot a short three-fingered claw for pulling in the thing it wanted to suck dry. (sighs) It's embarrassing to admit, and I never thought things like this really happened, but I pissed myself right there. I've been in enough scrapes to know that when it comes to fight or flight, my instinct is to fight. But the inhumanity of this thing short-circuited my brain. I fell backward and scrambled into my bedroom as it took a step up the stairs. Once I'd slammed the door shut, I shoved my dresser in front of it and my bed for good measure. There were a series of scrapes outside the door, and I called the cops without knowing what else to do. I didn't own anything more offensive than the bat. Of course, the police didn't believe a word of my story. They assumed I'd been high or hallucinated the monster. They even suggested I get a psych evaluation, but they couldn't deny the broken glass. Nothing was stolen, though. They had a cop hang out for the rest of the night and advised me to get my window fixed. The next day, I took off work and went to the library. I hadn't been there since a school trip in the fourth grade, but I knew they had smart people, librarians. Thankfully, Carolyn at the front desk knew all about Hazel Peak's older legends. I described the journal, but not my nighttime experience, and she said it might be related to the night terrors of 1792. According to her, residents traced the origin of the incidents to the local Lenape. Many early Pennsylvanians blamed Native Americans for everything that went wrong for them. This was especially true in Hazel Peak because the local tribe sided with the British in the Revolution. Although Carolyn also noted that some people were clearly convinced the horrible events were connected to strange lights spotted in the sky for a week that year. She showed me a local artist's interpretation. It looked kind of like an aurora. I've seen them on that Learning Channel show where people have to survive in harsh climates. Except this aurora was purple and yellow. Carolyn said the color was probably the artist's creative interpretation. Anyway, long story short, after the lights, a series of gruesome deaths started around the town and in the farms. People in Hazel Peak started to shun all farmers in the area because they feared the deaths were caused by some kind of disease spread by touch. Then, all of a sudden, the deaths stopped in August. No one figured out how or why. No one wanted to go near the dead bodies to try to get an answer. The farms of the deceased were just burned up and the people in town moved on. Carolyn gave me one last piece of unexpected information. We went into a musty part of the library where old records are kept. While reviewing a history of the town's census information, she showed me that a woman named Ursula was listed as the wife of a new sheriff named Oscar Wagner in 1800. She had a family in 1810 and lived to be near 80 as far as the records Carolyn could find told us. I haven't quite figured out what I'm going to do if the thing comes back. I could go buy a rifle and try to hold it off. If a 16-year-old girl killed whatever this is in 1790, surely I can, right? But why did my discovery of the journal bring this creature back? 
Has it been hibernating since Ursula defeated it? Or was Ursula Wagner a different woman entirely? All I can think is that the journal contaminated me somehow. I'm gonna dispose of it. Then I'm gonna figure out how to handle this thing. I just hope that Carolyn, my co-workers, and the police who came to my house aren't on this thing's radar now. I did my best to avoid touching people after I read the journal and saw the creature, but I can't be entirely certain I didn't graze any of them. Going cave diving can be a risky business. You have to meticulously prepare, take all the safety precautions, pack up all the equipment, and make sure you know what you're doing. It can be an absolute disaster if you're not on top of your game. In this tale, shared with us by author Carl Melton, we meet two brothers who know all the rules and take suitable safety steps. Unfortunately, it's not enough. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Peter Lewis, Erica Sanderson, and Graham Rowett. So no matter how prepared you are, you can't cover for every eventuality. Not when you're investigating the Moaning Caverns. There's a reason you don't find much life underground. Sure, a wolf pack might take shelter in a cave during a nasty storm. The occasional moth might venture into unknown caverns. But wolves and moths are not true cave dwellers. True cave dwellers are what the Greeks called troglobites, meaning any animal living entirely underground, never leaving. So seldom do these creatures see light that most troglobites are born completely blind. Take, for instance, the cave fish or the cave wolf spider. Not only are both blind, but they have no eyes at all, just pale flesh stretched over where eyes should be. Joining them are a whole host of various crawling insects, all blind, yet in their dark home, all seeing. Where they dwell, there's no need for vision. The darkness protects them and keeps them hidden. These creatures know the exact moment humans descend below the bedrock with our bright lights and clumsy footing. We don't belong down there, yet in some instances, it may become impossible to leave. My name is Blake Duran, and two weeks ago I made the worst decision of my life. One I'll have to live with forever. The night started like any other, Dad was away for business. Mom left years ago, so it was just my brother Nathan and me. Nate is not only older, but his personality is the exact opposite of mine. He's an Eagle Scout, while I had quit Cub Scouts years ago as a Weebelo. He's the daredevil adventurer. I'm the champion of the high school's chess club. I love my brother, but with Nate, 
it's always a challenge to prove myself somehow. Usually I ignore his taunts, but that night he was extra persistent, calling me the delicate wee below allergic to the outdoors. He was getting under my skin, and I was bored, so out of some stupid insecurity I agreed to play along. Earlier that week, he had taken his metal detector, a gift from Dad, to an old ghost town about five miles out of town. I was hoping he would bring back some long-lost antiques. Instead, he told me about a cavern in the foothills. He had almost fallen down the entrance, which was just a hole in the ground about five feet wide and concealed by pine shrubs. Ever since Dad left that morning, he was pestering me about climbing down the cavern chimney to explore. By evening, I relented, and we were packed and ready to go less than an hour later. We took Dad's old Ford pickup. Once we got to the outskirts of town, Nate pulled onto an old dirt road cutting through the desert into the foothills. We parked at the base of the first hill, and from there it was a two-mile hike. Beyond the hill was a narrow gorge running along a dried-up creek. The valley used to be a thriving hub for prospectors and gold miners back in the 1800s. In its heyday, this was one of the largest towns in New Mexico. But today, it's a forgotten relic of the past, with most of the old frontier buildings torn down or decayed. We walked past a few crumbling brick and adobe foundations and crossed the withered stream bed. The darkness was intimidating, with a new moon hidden in the sky and thick charcoal clouds drooping low to meet a howling gust of wind. The chill penetrated through our fleece-caving jumpsuits. The gorge took a steep bend as we walked around another hill. Nate stopped, trying to remember his path from the week before. I remember this bend. We're close now. Nate's eyes darted along the slanted slopes on our left. It's somewhere up here. How did you even manage to find the cavern? Nate looked at me and flashed a toothy grin. Bats. Bats? Yeah, you know, black, fuzzy, winged creatures live in caves, come out at night to eat insects. I saw a colony and figured they lived nearby. Did they not teach you about bats in Cub Scouts, Weebelow? I rolled my eyes and scanned the cloudy haze above us. No way we'll see any bats tonight. Eh, who needs bats when you have your big brother as a guide? He rustled my hair with his icy knuckle. Come on, Blake. This will be fun. Lead the way. We left the rocky gorge behind and climbed north. There was no trail, so we cut through thickets of pinyon and juniper shrubs. The hilltop was surprisingly flat, with steep drop-offs on the opposite side. Dense pockets of bushes dotted the landscape but Nate managed to retrace his steps and find the entrance. Nate grasped a handful of branches to reveal the rocky throat of the cavern. He picked up a nearby rock with his other hand and threw it in the dark chasm. Nate threw down our backpacks and unpacked while I stood on the edge of the seemingly endless drop. Rain fell from the low-hanging clouds. We never accounted for weather, and even though it was a light drizzle, I felt wholly unprepared for the task ahead. Seeing the vertical drop up close, its rocks slick with fresh rain brought forth a harsh chill of reality. I had never been caving before, 
I didn't even rock climb. Nate knew this, but I could see him unpacking regardless. Better strap in. We came all the way out here. There's no backing out now. Oh, come on, Nate. It's dark, and I don't want to slip. We'll come back in the morning. And what? Hope the sun starts shining underground? It's gonna be dark regardless, buddy. He took a step forward and put his arm around me. You know my old scoutmaster, uh, Dylan Cooper's dad? He served three tours in Afghanistan, searching cave after cave for terrorists. Well, guess who taught me everything I know about spelunking? That's nice. Go spelunk with Mr. Cooper. Nate frowned, but kept his arm around me. You're missing the point. See, I found this place, and the first person I thought to tell was you. We... we fight all the time. Can you blame me if I want to help you do something new and exciting before I leave? Fine, enough already. I shook his arm off my shoulder and continued. But whenever I say leave, we leave, okay? Of course. We, we go in, take a look around, and right back out. He seemed genuinely happy, and for a moment I felt guilty about the whole thing. I knew he was moving away for college soon, but I never acknowledged the impact of him leaving. With Dad's work travel, home without Nate just seemed lonely and bleak. Nate gave an amused look as I stepped into my harness. The fabric, an intense shade of fire engine red, clamped around my waist in a tight hug. That used to be mine, you know, before I bought this bad boy. He motioned towards his full-body armo camo harness. The built-in waist belt and crossing chest straps made him look like a paratrooping marine. Say what you want about Nate's over-eagerness, but he did come prepared. We had headlights, flashlights, rappel racks for descending, ascenders to get back up, and a 300-foot rope Nate had to special order. He thought the length was overkill, but better to be safe than sorry, especially since we had no idea how deep the cave floor was. Nate told me he searched all the forums online, but there was no mention of any caverns in the area. He said, we were explorers, navigating uncharted land. While he anchored the rope to a nearby pine, I stared down rows of sharp, protruding stone. My stomach turned uneasily, and my legs wobbled. A strange sense of pure fascination overtook me, a scientific zeal to leap through this jagged portal. The shape of the pit seemed to morph and swell, and I soon realized I no longer heard the drizzle of rain or the mating cries of the desert cicadas. The sunken cavities seemed to drown out all earthly noise. Blake! The sound of Nate's voice broke my trance. The rope's ready. Let's get you hooked up. With just the one rope, we had to descend one at a time. Nate insisted I go first so he could talk me through the steps. He fed the rope through the rack on my harness. This, uh, this is your braking system, okay? If you want to slow down, thread the rope around these bars to create friction. Take them out to speed up. You got it? I nodded, gulping down saliva and hanging on to his every word. I turned my back to the cavern and started my descent, maintaining a tight grip on the rope. Nate's booming instructions echoed clearly enough but his outline in the cloudy night sky faded from view as I got deeper. 
For the first time that night, I felt alone. The surrounding rock walls closed in on me as the pathway constricted. The wet rocks left a cold imprint every time my back grazed against stone. I've never been claustrophobic, but I felt stuck. Earth had swallowed me whole, and I was clogging its arteries. My eyes closed as I breathed in clammy and stale air. The endless dribble of water created a rich symphony as it fell down jagged rocks to the dark cavern floor below. The rope I strangled was wet. Everything was wet. I opened my eyes to see darkness overpower the fading ray of Nate's light. Keep going, you're almost there. Nate's voice thundered down like an angel from the heavens. I placed my boots on the slippery rock and continued my descent. I was making progress, despite my lingering sensation of being slowly digested in a dark pit. I must have been at least 200 feet down when the chimney transformed into a large, cavernous room. While my light could only illuminate a fraction of the space, the room appeared immeasurable. As I made my final descent, I wondered how Nate would react to the sheer size of the chamber. The place could fill a football stadium with room to spare. My boots landed on the rock floor with a thump. I tried to walk my weak legs out of numbness, then unhooked the rope from my harness and tugged on what little rope we had left. A faint shout responded from above. I walked on wobbly legs to explore my immediate surroundings while I waited for Nate to make his long climb down. Towering formations spread about the chamber. Limestone stalagmites rose from the cave floor like ancient monuments. Yet these were dwarfed by one colossal spherical column with long strings of rock hanging from the front. The stalagmite resembled a, a bearded man with hollow eyes glaring down. The more I studied it, the more inhuman it appeared, until it no longer looked like a man, but something closer to a squid or an alien elephant with three trunks dangling from its narrow face. Cold air ran up my arms as I walked into the vast and endless darkness. My breathing became heavy, and I inhaled some musty, spoiled air. A rotting odor was stuck on my tongue, and I covered my mouth. It smelled like roadkill. The smell of death. It didn't take long to find the source, even with my cheap headlight. A decomposing gray wolf was lying in a shallow puddle of water nearby. I looked towards the rocky slope I had rappelled down and realized the cause of death. Poor guy must have never seen the gap with all those bushes. It was a grim thought. One moment you're walking through pine shrubs, next you're falling feet first in darkness, smashing against sharp rocky teeth until you land in this subterranean cemetery. Despite the rancid smell, I pushed on, stepping over the rotting lobo and something else. The path became coarse and uneven, but I didn't stop until I heard a sharp piercing crunch from beneath my right boot. I lifted my foot and picked up three long white fragments which resembled a branch at first, but rough and porous. The bones fell from my hand and dropped on the cave floor with a soft clack. 
There was no way to know what animal it was. The bones were old, perhaps ancient, completely calcified with age. There were more white shards ahead, clumped together like clusters of broken seashells you would find along the beach. Except, these were no seashells. And worse, they were accumulating farther ahead, with each new pool of faded porcelain larger. The bones were more whole, more preserved. I moved my light to a new pile and time seemed to slow. I couldn't move, except for my eyes, which were scanning the objects before me. I was looking at a skull. A human skull with a gaping hole an inch above the right eye cavity. New objects came into view. I counted at least four arrowheads and a blunt wooden club, clay pottery shards and some large circular beads. Beyond that was a second skeleton with a shattered leg and outstretched arms. Just out of reach was a broken whiskey bottle. Nate! I ran as fast as I could, calling for my brother and gasping shouts, but there was no response. I tried to retrace my steps back to the landing spot, but I soon realized I was lost. I scanned the stalagmites ahead, but there was no sign of the elephant-like behemoth I spotted earlier. Nothing looked familiar. It made no sense. I was sure I had not ventured far. I continued my mad dash and sensed movement from the corner of my eyes. My heart jumped as I looked back to see a figure walking in the opposite direction. I recognized the jumpsuit right away. It was Nate. What the hell happened, Nate? He stopped walking and turned around, raising his hand to shield his eyes from my light. He was dragging the heavy climbing rope behind him, still connected to his harness. Blake... How far did you fall? I I don't know. He paused, struggling to put his words together. I I remember the the rope was loose. The rain must have screwed with my knot. I tried to hold onto a ledge, but never got my, uh, my footing. I took his shattered headlight off and examined his head. His hair was slick with sweat and dirt, but no bump. He was disoriented, but otherwise unscathed. Are you hurt? He paused to examine his palms. I feel fine. Let's get some more light. He unclipped the rope from his harness and tossed me one of two flashlights he had dangling from his belt. I grasped the cheap plastic flashlight and turned it on. Nate, how exactly do we get out of here with no rope? We'll find a way. A lot of these caverns have multiple entrances. But we climbed down nearly 300 feet and- Don't you think I know that? Just trust me, okay? I'll find a way out. Yeah, well, there's something I should show you first. I motioned for him to follow, and we walked back towards the bony graveyard. Uh, Something reeks. I pointed my light to the dead wolf. Nate covered his nose and bent down to observe its black eyes. Come on, there's more. More of what? I carried my light back to the cracked skull surrounded by Indian artifacts. Is that a... A human skull. You see the hole on top? You don't get a head injury like that from falling. He was hit. 
hard. By who? Other Indians? Settlers? Who knows? I'm not sure how old these are. The Indian skull could be hundreds of years old, if not more. I turned to the more preserved skeleton near the shattered bottle. Mr. Whiskey here is not looking too bad, all things considered. I paused to inspect the artifacts. There were more arrowheads, clubs, and broken rusted axes all near human remains. Everything else was just jumbled heaps of dust and bone. There's something funny about this place. It's all too... convenient. What do you mean? There's a whole warehouse of supplies just sitting here. Stuff that most people wouldn't carry on them. Maybe one of the corpses was a traitor? Possibly. Or this place could have been a type of jail or confinement for the local tribes to throw away troublemakers. Wait. Nate pointed at the cracked skull. Why would they bash his head in? It's not a jail if every prisoner is dead. Unless they let someone else make the final blow. What if they brought more than one prisoner down at a time and left them here surrounded by all these weapons and a limited supply of food? I pointed my light to a clump of fabric. That could have been a blanket before it started to decompose. The antler back there is from a buck. A big one, too. He didn't just fall. He was dinner. A fight to the death. Some theory you got there. A chill wind came through as goosebumps formed rough patches on my arms. I thought of my warm bed and had an undeniable sensation I shouldn't be in this rocky death pit. I started to tell Nate we should be looking for a way to leave, but he raised a finger and shushed me. As he stared in the darkness, I heard it. That's not an animal. Don't freak out. It's the cavern playing tricks on us. I read about these types of things. The water drips into hollow crevices in the rock, and the sound echoes back to us. Okay, Mr. Geologist, but to me, it sounds human. Like a kid or a woman is crying. It's so subtle, it could be anything, Nate. I was trying to calm him, but I didn't realize I'd begun to raise my voice as well. We made our way towards where we thought the source of the moaning was. My headlight was pale and somber, its batteries draining by the minute. With Nate's light damaged from the fall, he had to use one of the backup flashlights as his sole light source. Without hesitating, Nate bolted in a sprint. I followed, pumping my sore arms and legs into motion. I was panting, but determined to keep up with the bouncing beam from Nate's light. The last thing I wanted was to be separated again. I hurtled over a rock, stumbled, and nearly ran into Nate. What is it? He turned to me, but had no answer. I pushed him aside to get a better look and froze. It was a boy, maybe six or seven years old, wearing a navy blue and red striped shirt. He was sitting on a rock in the middle of a small pool with his back to us, oblivious to our presence. His feet kicked the shallow water below as he emitted a high-pitched cry. <coughs> Nate looked to me and took a few steps forward, clearing his throat. <coughs> it, uh, hey, hey, kid. Are you hurt? 
Nate continued his advance and placed a shaking hand on the boy's shoulder. Are, are you hurt? The boy jumped and fell hands first into water. I lunged forward to help, but he crawled away, keeping his distance in the cloudy, dark water. I looked at Nate. He shrugged and turned to ask another question, but the boy was gone, replaced by a trail of water. We followed, calling out for him until we reached the end of the main chamber. Before us was a narrow passageway about five feet tall. We ducked our heads and continued. Water seemed to ooze out of rocks and onto the floor, concealing the boy's trail. After a few minutes, we reached an intersection. One path on our right continued uphill. The other to our left followed a steep downhill slope. While we deliberated, the boy's low sobbing echoed from above and we rushed uphill. The tangled trail took several sharp turns around bends, never quite staying a straight path. After a few hundred feet, we found ourselves in a small dead-end room. A slew of sharp calcite stalactites drooped from the low ceiling and soda straw formations, like hundreds of thin icicles dangling a foot from my head. The boy was bending over something we couldn't see. Near him was a pile of large rocks that fell from an overhead ledge above. The sheer quantity of rock and loose dirt made it look like a cave-in. What happened to him? Nate approached, flashlight in hand, and I followed. The boy turned to face us, his eyes red and puffy from tears. He was bending over the body of a young boy lying face down, feet crushed by several small boulders. The corpse was rotten and decayed, dirty thin rags soaked in blood wrapped around his back. We stepped closer, inch by inch, to discover... They were not rags, but a deteriorated cotton shirt with navy blue and red stripes. Nate dropped his flashlight and stepped back. The boy jumped from his position and held out his hands. Wait, don't leave. He wiped his congested nose with a finger and looked right at me. What's wrong? Please don't leave. I choked on my words, struggling to get something, anything out. The boy, still sniffling, followed my eyes to the corpse behind him, and then at his own shirt. His mouth contorted to a wide gasp. (laughs) Tears welled in his eyes, and he started to shriek. Hundreds of needle-sharp stalactites above swayed to the howling of the boy. He began to fidget and squirm as if he was having a seizure until the compulsion stopped. And with a trance-like, placid face, he started chanting. Never again the light of day. Never again. He repeated that one line while walking out into the dark tunnels with no light. Blood rushed to my cheeks, and I locked eyes with Nate. Is this some prank of yours? The rope breaking? Your miraculous survival? This dead kid? Some sick joke to prove how big of a man you are? Well? Nate looked at me with pleading eyes. Eyes that gave a resounding no. Then we need to leave. Now. He stood there, shaking his head. Not without the boy. Forget about the damn kid. We need to move these rocks. This could be a collapsed exit. A way out. I can clear the rocks faster. You take the last flashlight and bring him back. Nate! 
We won't leave him. Go to the main room where we first found him. Fine. I grabbed the flashlight from Nate's belt and ran back down the tunnel. By the time I returned to the main chamber, my cold sweat had turned into a feverish soak. Impenetrable darkness seemed to swarm around me as my headlight dimmed into obscure flickers of fading light. I powered on the flashlight and called for the boy in asthmatic shouts. I scoured as much of the boundless room as I could, but took a sharp turn, lost my footing, and slammed my head against a heap of rock. I woke lying face down, drooling on cold limestone. I don't know how long I was out, but the sweat on my forehead had dried, replaced with a swollen, pulsing bump below the shattered headlight. My flashlight was still on, sitting about five feet from where I fell. There was a dull pain in my head and a high-pitched ringing in my ears. Nate? Like the light in my hands, my voice was shaky. I didn't know whether to shout at the top of my lungs or whisper in hushed tones. It wasn't Nate's voice that greeted me, but the raspy, short-winded wheeze of some unseen dying animal, its dank, sweltering breath right outside my left ear. Come back in dark this way. I sprang to my feet and fled in the opposite direction. With each stride, it grew darker. I reached for my flashlight, but my hands grasped onto nothing. I couldn't think. My mind was barren from the icy pang of panic. I continued to run out of pure impulse until I found myself cornered. My flashlight was lying on the ground about 20 feet away. The light was... distorted, like a firefly extinguishing every few seconds. It would appear first as a speck, then a sliver of light, enough to illuminate a moving shadow. Something was standing in front of the light. The light returned in full as the shadow retreated in the darkness. At that moment, something lifted my flashlight. I couldn't see anything but a levitating light carried by shuffling footsteps that were closing in, fast. Paralysis overtook me. Anxiety strangled out instincts. I searched for any angle to escape, but the shadow was too close. With eyes closed and ears covered by ice-cold hands, I prayed. I prayed that this was all a side effect of a concussion, that Nate was out there doing one of his amateur pranks. But I sensed growing light, approaching footsteps, rotting breath on my face. I clenched my gut, and my eyes opened to... Nothing. There was nothing. Not even my flashlight. Whether it was luck or delusion, I don't know. But I escaped, wandering in the darkness, hands outstretched, reaching for any obstacle in my way. Eventually, I spotted light. My missing flashlight, abandoned near our detached rope and climbing equipment. I had finally reached the chimney we climbed down. For the first time since leaving Nate, I felt hope rushing in. I could salvage the equipment and use the light to return to Nate, who might have found the boy. But there was something else, shrouded behind the pile of rope. <gasps> Nate's body 
was lying in a pool of blood, his body mangled, ice cold with no pulse. Blood flowed from a large crack in his skull, and a shattered shin bone tore clear through his skin. I sat there sobbing while cradling my brother, refusing to let go. I felt something tap my shoulder and locked eyes with Nate, perfectly healthy, not a scrape or gash on him. His grim eyes traveled to the body in my arms, his body. He had the same dazed expression the boy had shown earlier. Never again, the light of day, come back in dark this way. You wake deep below burial ground. From out of the darkness, the boy ran to embrace me. His nervous fidgeting was almost rat-like. Where am I? Why am I down here? I opened my mouth to speak, but Nate started chanting a new line. You will come back around. I looked at the chanting clone of my brother into the bloody body behind me and felt lightheaded. The walls of the chamber were closing in around me, trapping and suffocating me in the darkness. I did what I thought was my only option left. I grabbed the flashlight and ran as fast as I could until I reached the collapsed cavern entrance. I heaved the rocks away, starting with the small boulders near the boy's corpse and moving onto the overhead ledge where most of the rocks remained. You can't leave me in here! My hands, swollen and red, worked at a surprising pace, despite a feeble, numbing sensation overpowering each and every limb. Tunnel vision set in as I clawed away at the rocks until I felt, for the first time in hours, a gush of cold wind burst through a small gap. My lungs took their fill of fresh air as I cleared the last few rocks standing between me and the whistling cicadas outside. Every part of me wanted to crawl out right then and there, but I hesitated and turned to face Nate and the boy. Both stood below the ledge. They begged for me to stay and help. I'll never forget those faces. Never have I seen such a look of pure dread on Nate's face. But in those moments, he looked like my big brother rather than the robotic chanting version of Nate. And the boy. I I can't even begin to explain how wrong it felt to see a kid so broken, so helpless, but with no hope. Tears streamed down my eyes. Nate, if you're really there, follow me home. For the briefest of moments, I convinced myself Nate would climb out, and together we would walk home. Nate would crack his jokes, teasing me for believing his ploy. But the face I was looking at was not laughing, not even a smirk. They would not follow me, even if they wanted to. Three figures emerged from behind Nate and the boy. The things were human, yet severely deformed. Thin albino skin stretched over arching hunchbacks, while massive veins bulging under the skin glowed an eerie green. Three pairs of empty eye sockets stared back at me, black and empty as the cave they occupied. 
The largest of the three let out a guttural roar and advanced, placing his hands on his prisoners. Nate and the boy collapsed, and the disfigured creatures dragged them into the darkness beyond. I squirmed through the small opening and found myself at a familiar small gulch near the foot of the hill. I stacked a pile of rocks to reseal the exit and begun the lonely walk back to the car. To my surprise, the first light of dawn was emerging in the night sky. I estimated I was in the cave for over seven hours. A flock of bats returning from the night's hunt swarmed overhead and congregated at the top of the hill. With all that had happened to me, I remember obsessing over those bats. Did they answer to whoever or whatever controls the cavern, or are they victims as well? Their home corrupted by some perverse colony of subterrestrial beasts. I managed to find the car, and while I didn't have a license, I knew enough from watching Nate and Dad drive to get home. I pulled into the driveway, then walked into the empty house and cried. I grasped the phone in my sweaty hands and dialed Dad's number. Our call was tense and short. He booked the first flight back to New Mexico, and later that day, I told him face to face that Nate was missing. I didn't mention anything that happened after Nate fell. I didn't want him processing anything beyond arranging search parties for Nate. I could barely process the prior night's events. How was I supposed to tell him everything? All I know is Nate's body is down there along with someone who looks exactly like Nate. After a week and a half of searching every known cave in the area, the search party was called off. I tried to lead everyone to the cavern, but I couldn't remember how to get there. It's as if my memories are being torn from me, overtaken by a lingering sensation that a part of me I need to go on with my life is missing. Like trying to run with no lungs, with every inhale of air passing right through me. Whatever is wrong with me, it's getting worse with each passing day. So, in case I don't make it back, I wrote down everything I remember about our descent into those moaning caverns. Yes, I'm going back for Nate. Dad can't look me in the eyes for more than a few passing seconds. He doesn't look at me the same way anymore, and when I lay in bed and reflect, I know part of him, a part he is trying to suppress, blames me for losing Nate. If there's any chance Nate is still out there, I'm going to look for him. While I don't remember how to get there, I'm starting to recall more. For the past few nights, I've been having a recurring dream where I'm walking, not willingly, but walking towards the cavern in a paralyzed trance, unable to stop until I reach the collapsed exit. I remove rocks until I can only see pitch black. Yet in these dreams, I sense life, a frenzy of activity tucked away in the darkness. I sense Nate, the boy, and dozens of others trapped in the dire dungeon. Then... Like a scourge of lightning in the night sky, the chamber lights up in a greenish glow, and I see myself, only the back of my head, 
but enough to know it's me, starved and alone. As the green light fades to black, I hear a gravelly voice calling for me to return before I wake up. To return and find the missing part of me I left behind. The voice moans and beckons. Again. And again. Never again the light of day. Come back in dark this way. You wake deep below burial ground. You will come back around. Monsters in the Closet, a traditional childhood fear, and as any parent knows, something worth talking through with your kids and putting a stop to. After all, it's just a closet. It has clothes in it, maybe some toys, but that's it. But in this tale, shared with us by author Matthew Speak, the crying coming from behind that innocuous door might be all too real. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Nicole Goodnight, and Armin Taylor. So don't dismiss your daughter's fears. Investigate that weeping, but be careful, at least when the claims are coming from Morgan's girl. A chill breeze rolls into the open window lifting the drapes like a naughty boy peeking under the neighbor lady's skirt. It pushes its way through the room, rushing over the bed and across my body. I pull the covers to my chin and swaddle myself as best I can against the sudden chill of the fall air. The last gasps of an extended summer had kept the temperature warm enough to keep the windows open, but after tonight, it will be nine months before they're open again. As I lay there thinking about the Herculean task of getting out of bed and crossing the room to close the window, I feel a small hand touch my shoulder, and I sit straight up, startled. (gasps) Sorry, Daddy. I blink down at the blankets for a moment, then to my left to see my seven-year-old daughter, Alex, yawning in her light pink gown. Ah, It's okay, honey. Bad dream? No, Daddy. Something woke me up. She rubs the sleep from her eyes with her tiny fingers. Traces of green makeup peek out from the sides of her face and just under her eyes. She'd been the cutest little fairy on the whole block tonight. Oh, it's chilly, that's all. There's a breeze this evening. Let's close your window and find you another blanket. Sorry, I haven't had time to get the heavy comforters out of storage yet. I wasn't expecting the weather to get so cold tonight, but I guess it is almost November. It's not that, Daddy. Someone woke me. I stare at her for a moment, scanning her face for signs of confusion. Someone woke you? Alex nods. Who woke you, honey? That 
man again. Which man? I'm the only man in the house. No, Daddy, he's back. He won't let me sleep. What a creative little mind, I tell myself, smiling. You say he's been here before? Yes, Daddy. I clear my throat as I slide my legs out from under the covers and sit on the edge of the bed, looking around for my slippers. Glancing behind me out the window, I see the faint glow of the neighbor's jack-o'-lantern, its candle still stubbornly flickering as the flame consumes the last millimeter of wick. At that moment, I hear a small shuffling sound from the closet, which I immediately ignore, turning to Alex. This man... Why does he wake you, my love? Puffy-eyed and tangled hair, Alex hoists herself onto my lap, curling herself into a ball as I finally slip my feet into the old worn slippers. I don't know, but I can hear him crying. Sometimes he yells, but mostly he cries. She lays her head on my shoulder. I feel her hot breath and the warm skin of her forehead on my neck. He yells? What does he yell? My skin tightens ever so slightly, and the goose flesh rises as another creak groans through the ceiling. There is a sensation in the room, like an awareness. An awareness of another presence. I picture someone just over the railing at the top of the stairs, listening to our conversation, waiting for his moment. Who could be up there? It's nothing. It's Halloween, and her imagination is running wild. What does he yell about, dear? All kinds of things. Mostly I can't understand, but sometimes it sounds like he's crying. Crying? About what? I don't know, Daddy. For help? For help? Alex's head lolls back, resting on my shoulder. As she dozes off in my arms, I listen for several minutes straining to hear any further sounds from upstairs, any creak of floorboards or rustling of pant legs. Nothing but silence. Still, I cannot shake the ominous thought that we are not alone in the house. My mind pops to the shotgun sitting in the back of the closet, leaning against a stack of shoeboxes, and I almost stand to fetch it. However, as I stare at the dark wood door in the corner of my room, I feel an inexplicable apprehension, as if something terrible would happen. As if opening that closet door would release all of my demons. Such a strange thought, a bizarre sensation. If an intruder were in the house, I would rather fight him off with my bare hands than open that door. This worries me. Why does he need help? I think about pursuing the line of questioning further, but brush off the whole affair as nothing more than my daughter's well-developed imagination. I vainly take joy in her story, and as I carry her back upstairs to her room, I even pride myself in the excellent parenting I've done. How the boys at work will love this tale. Another chill runs across my skin like a wave of tiny, skittering spiders. I quickly glance around me. Though no one is here but Alex and me, I get another strange feeling. The sensation you get when you walk into a place and realize someone else was there only moments before. 
The memory of a presence lingers in the air. What's the matter, Daddy? Oh, nothing, darling. Nothing's the matter. Now get your little buns into that bed. <laughs> As Alex crawls under her blanket, I sit next to her and brush her dark hair from her round face. My heart fills as I smile down at her. She grins back at me with a sparkle in her eyes, the scary man in her room now all but forgotten. I kiss her forehead and run the back of my fingers across her soft little cheek. But then, a thought occurs to me. I look at the closet door and I realize I hear something. A soft movement as if someone were moving but trying to keep quiet. Honey, this man, where did he come from? He showed up one night. <gasps> when I speak, the sound stops. Out of thin air? I guess so. He's not the only one. What do you mean? Her eyes widen like she said the wrong thing. <gasps> oh, there's another man who sometimes comes to but. I don't want to talk about him. My heart lurches with a skipped beat. Why don't you want to talk about him? Because I'm not supposed to. Why? You wouldn't understand. Why wouldn't I understand? You just wouldn't, not yet. Honey, you need to tell me, right now. He was here tonight, Daddy. He was? Yes. Did I see him? Um, sort of. Prickles run across the back of my neck like a corpse's cold fingers, lightly grazing the flesh. My chest tightens and I gasp to catch a quick breath, realizing I'd been holding it for some time. I saw him? Yeah, when we were trick-or-treating. He followed us? Kinda. There were so many people out with their kids. I can't remember them all and I certainly don't remember a man following us. Though I was so wrapped up in Alex's fun, I could have missed him completely. Her colorful little costume and the light jingle of her laugh rang through my head throughout the night. Still, a strange notion sits in my mind that there is something I'm forgetting. Something I should remember. Then it hits me. Your mommy. Alex pulls the covers above her mouth, but I can see she's hiding a sly smile. Alex, was mommy with us tonight? Don't you remember yet? My head swims and I'm feeling slightly dizzy. No, isn't that odd? I don't recall seeing her at all. Was she with us? She shrugs. No. Where was she? Home. Something tells me to leave my wife aside for the time being, so I switch back to the other. This man, the one who followed us, what did he look like? I don't know. Tall like you, I guess. Tall like me? I guess. With another long yawn, Alex settles her head into her pillow. What did he look like? What did his face look like? The smallest flash of a memory pops into my head. Like you, Daddy. Like me? What does that mean? I'm not supposed to tell. Who says not to tell? Damn it, I'm your father! I can't! What do you mean? My forehead is moist with sweat and I realize I'm gripping her blanket a little too tightly. Immediately, I release it and hold my hands up as if to deny what I've just done. He says you're not ready. I don't understand. Shh, Daddy, he's back. 
the crying man. A small pool of tears wells up above her lower eyelids, and her bottom lip quivers. He is? In the closet? Yes. Do you hear him too? Daddy, please make him go away. A small pool of tears wells up above her lower eyelids, and her bottom lip quivers. If this is nothing more than imagination, she's doing an excellent job of pretending. As I make my way to the door, the closet floorboards groan, stopping me in my tracks. What if she's not acting? What if somebody is really in there? I should have brought my gun. Another flash of memory hits unexpectedly, nearly blinding me. A hot vision of blood and violence, a shotgun blast, then another, then another, and a woman screaming. But it only lasts a second or two. None of it makes a lick of sense. I wobble on my feet. Reaching out, I steady myself on the handle of the closet door. Lowering my head, I see Alex's trick-or-treating sack lying empty on the bedroom floor, just outside the closet. And there's something red smeared on the carpet next to it. Funny. Where's her candy? Finally, I open the door with a slow creak and poke my head inside. The weak glow of Alex's small bedroom lamp casts a dim beam of light onto the far wall of the walk-in closet. A bright, uninterrupted rectangle. This image seems strange to me, though I can't put a finger on why. Do you see that? A perfect rectangle of light! Ignoring the thought, I step into the closet, peering through the double clothes racks towards the back wall. At first, my eyes, still unused to the darkness, make out nothing more than winter clothes, old toys, and boxes full of empty memories. Nothing about any of it seems out of place or even out of the ordinary. Then, just as I turn to announce to Alex her fears are baseless, my heartbeat receding back to a normal rhythm, something catches my eye just beyond a row of hanging dresses. A shadow of a shape huddled in the back corner. I step to my right, around my wife's wedding dress. Something's back there, something resembling a person. A man. He's sitting with his hands behind his back and his ankles together like he's bound hand and foot. He's got light-colored hair and pale skin, his face frozen, contorted in a mix between screaming and weeping though not a sound comes from his lips. Judging by the soiled state of his jeans and the pungent odor in the room, he's been here for days. Memory crashes into my mind. Pain and anger, sadness and fury. I collapse to the floor in a heap, gasping for air, and nausea rolls through my stomach. I feel a slight shift in my thoughts, as if for an instant I am no longer myself. In that curious moment, I am someone else. Someone I almost recognize. More visions flash through my thoughts, hitting me like a bucket of ice water. A woman and man joined, naked and panting and sweating, burning my soul with a sizzling fury, then drops of blood flying into the air. The man in the corner releases one long sob, interrupting the horror of the memory. Oh, please. Oh, please help me. 
Someone, please help me. Who are you? The man halts his sobbing abruptly as if startled by my voice. He sits there, his head inclined to the side as if listening intently. But he says nothing more. Who are you? Why are you in my daughter's closet? I'll call the police! Is someone... Is someone there? What an absurd question. He has to see me sitting here as I'm only a few feet from him. Or has he lost his mind? Is he blind? Is someone there? I clear my throat, but before I can speak, the man begins a hideous wail. He cries out, repeating the question over and over, and remains unresponsive to any attempt I make to gain his attention. The words, though sad and frightening, make no sense at all. Or do they make perfect sense? I'm dizzy as I scramble to my feet and stumble back into the bedroom. The room swirls before me. Memories, hundreds, are flashing across the blank screen of my mind, like an entire day on fast forward. Memories of a car, of whispers, a conspiracy, a disheveled bed, and blood, lots of blood. I hear my wife screaming and I see the red vision of a dark rage consuming me, changing me until I once again become the other, if only briefly. Someone just like me, but different. I shake the other out of my mind. What happened here? Daddy, did you see him? What have I done? Is he in there? Yes, darling. Can you make him go away for good this time? I look again at the empty Halloween candy bag on the floor, and then scan the rest of the room quickly. A thought occurs to me. Why hadn't I thought of it before? I reach down to pick up the orange sack. Honey, where's your candy? What? Your candy, the Halloween candy. Where is it? What, Daddy? I look at her, holding up the sack with one hand, my other hand on my hip. Don't what daddy me? You know what I'm asking. We went trick-or-treating tonight, did we not? We did. It sounds like a lie. Then where is the candy? A mischievous grin flashes on her face. I'm sorry, daddy. More memories pile into my thoughts. Sorry for what? I didn't get any candy. You didn't? No. We never went trick-or-treating. No, Daddy. And just like that, my vision clears and my head stops the interminable swimming. I stare at Alex's room. Blood spatters streak across the walls and the carpet and the crayon-colored pictures of Disney princesses. I'm not horrified by the scene. Not at all. I find it all so amusing, like a silly mystery I've finally cracked. I laugh for a moment, sliding my hands into my pajama pockets. Do you remember now, Daddy? Yes, darling. I think I do. I remember everything now. Strange that I had forgotten, but it has been a stressful time. And the man in the closet? His crying will stop soon, my love. 
He will, Daddy? Yes, honey. Only a few more days, tops. And Mommy, can she come back? I miss her. Mommy, what to do with her? The interloper can rot for all I care. But my wife, what to do, what to do? Soon, when I'm ready, sweetheart, when I'm ready. I snap off Alex's light and kiss her head, now visibly covered in blood and brains. Then skip out of the room and dance back down the stairs. As I cross the hall and return to my bedroom, I feel something wet running down the back of my head. I don't check the source. I already know what it is. I remember. The blinds are still billowing elegantly into the cold room as I lift the blankets, brushing my own brains off the pillow, and settle myself into the blood-stained bed. Our wedding bed. From the closet door, my wife's muffled voice moans to me, pleading. Smiling a little, I glance at the door. Good night, my love. I promise I won't leave you in there forever. You can come out and join us again, once you've learned your lesson. There is no response, but the message is received. From upstairs, I hear the man in Alex's closet, still crying, still crying, repeating the same words over and over until they become like a chant. Please, someone save me. Can anyone hear me? They're all dead. And I'm alone. <laughs> he killed them and left me here to die. <laughs> Can anyone hear me? Oh, God. Oh, God. On and on. I smile as I slip off to sleep, basking in the happiest thoughts I've had in many days, thrilled in victory, overjoyed in knowing my rival will die slowly, trapped in a haunted house. Lee is down on his luck. His wife left him, he's lost his job, and he's looking to make things right. Thankfully, he has a pal with a plan. Steal some propane from Walmart, get rich quick. But in this tale, shared with us by author Frank J. Orito, another opportunity presents itself in the form of Lee's old Ford truck. Performing this tale are Jesse Cornett, Jessica McAvoy, Jeff Clement, Mick Wingert, and Graham Rowett. So pop the hood and see why that truck's running so smoothly. What you find in there might cause your plan to move on to phase two.
folks up on Wheeler Mountain had their fair share of weird that winter. Bo Gifford claimed his pride heifer gave birth to a calf with two asses, and Danny said there were a lot more shooting stars than normal. But I think things really start going downhill when my Ford pickup ate Richard Petty. Little Dale found the old Tomcat and named him in the tradition of our family, boys after NASCAR drivers and girls after country music songs. That orange-haired monster might have started life out as Fluffy, but he finished up as Richard Petty. Dale and the twins, Delia and Ruby, loved that mangy thing. Even Shelly doted on it, and she wasn't one to take a shine to neither man nor beast. Maybe there's only so much love in the world to go around, because the more Shelly and the kids gave that cat, the less they had for me. It was February when it happened. I grabbed Richard Petty by the scruff of his neck and headed for the door. It's too cold. He's got a freeze. Where the hell you think it slept before we took it in? Shelley didn't have an argument for that. Truth be told, it was too damn cold. The kind of cold that makes you slap a jockstrap on your brass monkey. But I'd be getting peanut butter and jelly for lunch because the tuna I liked went into Petty's bowl. I tossed that yowling son of a bitch into the yard like I was trying for a strike at the Bolarama. Let the little shit freeze. The next morning, I staggered out to the truck after a quick breakfast of sun drop and cigarettes. I was thinking about my job 12 hours on the factory floor screwing part A onto part B. Where Richard Petty spent the night didn't cross my mind. I started up the truck. The engine made a chunking sound, and then whined to life. Petty's final yowl filled the yard like a siren. Shelly and the kids poured out of the house in time to see the blood dripping off the hood as I looked down at the mess that had been their favorite pet. What the hell did you do, Lee? Me? I didn't do a thing. The damn cat crawled up under the hood. How was I supposed to know? You put him out in the cold. You knew what would happen. It wasn't true. I tried to explain. Critters were always getting under car hoods looking for a little warmth. And most times, they just hightailed it out when the engine started. I didn't plan it. I hated the cat, but no animal deserved what Richard Petty got. I would have never done such a thing on purpose. Hell, cleaning the engine would take me all day. The kids didn't say a word. They just looked at me. I knew the family was upset, but I thought maybe, while with the cat gone, things might get better. They didn't. I had been right about there only being so much love. When the Ford's fan blade tore through all nine of Richard Petty's lives, the love died with him. There wasn't anything but anger and blame left for old Lee Swafford Jr. Shelley took the kids and left a few months later. She claimed I was spending all my time drinking with Danny instead of looking for a new job after the factory let me go. Well, that was true, but I blamed the damn cat. I had a plan, though. A way to make some money and get Shelley and the kids to come home. Maybe I was fooling myself, 
I heard Shelly was dating Bob Gill, owner of Big Bob's Boot Barn, and that little Dale and the girls already called him Daddy. But a man's got a dream, and my dreams were fueled with propane. Danny and I pulled into the Super Walmart outside of Dayton around 2 a.m. We parked right up close to the long gray cage full of propane tanks. Construction sites went through that shit like a drunk through a case of high life. It cost them $30 a tank, but I'd sell it to them for half that. And it was all profit. Danny hopped out of the passenger seat. He already had the bolt cutters, what he called the key to the city, in his hand. The lock clanged onto the asphalt, and in five minutes flat, we had 25 tanks in the truck bed with a tarp over it. I scanned the parking lot as I pulled out. Well, there were only a few oldsters camping out in their RVs on their way to see America, one Walmart at a time. I'd rubbed some mud on our license plate. The old folks couldn't see with the shit anyway. Danny did the math, his eyes rolling up as if the answer was tattooed inside of his skull. Another few weeks and we can go to phase two. Danny talked fancy, but I didn't mind. He was the brains of the outfit. I'd been getting in trouble with Danny since the two of us were eight years old. He always had a scheme and there was always a phase two. This time, phase two was getting a flatbed truck we could paint up to look official and some uniforms with names on the pockets. We could triple the propane we carried and we'd look like delivery men so nobody would suspect us. Problem was, we kept drinking up the profits. Danny grabbed a beer from the cooler and handed it to me. He took a swig off his own can and stowed it between his legs. We're on our way, Lee. He noticed me staring at the truck's gauges. What's wrong? I shook my head. Not a thing. That was what worried me. I loved that Ford, but it was an ornery machine. It burned through gas and oil like a fat man goes through fried chicken. When we started our little enterprise, I figured the first thing I'd need to spend the money on was tuning up the truck. But the thing purred like a kitten. No warning lights, no overheating. Stranger still, I hadn't put gas in the beast for a couple of weeks, and it's still red over half a tank. The next morning, well, afternoon, I lay on the couch in the trailer, hungover and still worried. And what if the gas gauge wasn't working? It would not do to run out of gas with 20 tanks of stolen propane in the truck bed. I pulled myself up and lit a cigarette to burn away the cobwebs. I was out of sundrop. Outside, the sun was high and sweat trickled down the back of my neck. I popped the hood on the Ford and looked inside. I stood there, unable to move, for a good minute before I broke and ran. Jesus fucking Christ! I was in the trailer before the hood clanked shut. I pulled out another cigarette to replace the one that I dropped outside and grabbed a beer from the fridge. My hands shook so much it took three tries to light up. There was something on the truck's engine. Critters crawl up under truck hoods all the time. I'd told Shelly and the kids that, and it was true. But I'd never seen nothing like this. 
I closed my eyes and tried to make sense of it. The body was long and rounded, and parts of it covered by some sort of hard shell, but you could see the meat of the thing pressed up through the gaps, all gray and sick-looking, like month-old bologna. There wasn't a head, just the body, and at least a couple of dozen legs sticking out of every which way. Big fleshy sacks hung off the thing's sides, more where the legs jointed up. The sacks would swell up like a bullfrog, about to croak and go flat again. The legs, well, I called them legs, but they could have been arms or antenna for all I could figure. Weren't just holding on to the engine, they were poking right through the metal. Something like rubber cement sealed up the gaps. If there were ticks in hell, they would have looked like the thing under the hood of my Ford. Two beers and a dozen cigarettes didn't bring me any closer to knowing what to do. I walked outside, picking up the hatchet that lay by the woodpile. I came at the Ford from the back, squatted down, and tried to see past the pair of shiny chromium truck nuts that little Dale had given me last Father's Day. There it was, caked in a camouflage of mud and exhaust dirt. Thin legs, jointed every few inches, wrapped themselves around the exhaust pipe, packing the hole at the end. My brain made a connection. The car, running so well, hardly using any gas. Was this critter the cause? The whole thing was bigger than I could think, so I called Danny. He said I was crazy or still drunk. I didn't blame him. When I told him about the truck not burning any gas, he sounded a bit more interested. He pulled up a half hour later. Well, let's see your monster bug. I yanked open the hood, this time propping it. We stood and looked at the thing wrapped around my engine. Start her up. With the engine running, the thing changed. The sacks went into high gear. You could tell there was something wet inside them getting pumped along. Where the legs poked into the engine, they glowed. We shut her down and went inside for some brain fuel. I heated up a couple of pot pies in the microwave while Danny pulled the first Miller Lite from a fresh Casey bought. So, what do you think? I pulled the plastic back from the top of my pie. Danny smiled. I don't know for sure yet, but this may be big. Why don't you take the bed? I don't feel comfortable in it without Shelly. Danny lifted his beer. Fuck Big Bill and his boot barn. Amen. We kept drinking. Danny got up every so often and walked out to his truck with a flashlight. Things got blurry as the night went on. I was about asleep when Danny came through the doorway and gave a rebel yell that shook the windows. It did it! He dragged me out to the trucks. He'd moved his right next to mine and both the hoods were open. Danny shined the flashlight down on his engine and smiled. Look at that, Lee. There was another one. It was smaller 
The gray, hard-looking limbs weren't so dirty yet, and the sacks didn't swell as big, but the thing attached to Danny's truck engine sure enough did look like the critter on mine. Danny slapped me on the back and let out another rebel yell. Woohoo! You know what this means? Between the beer and not being the sharpest tool in God's shed, I had to admit I didn't. We can farm the goddamn things. People would pay a lot of money for their old clunkers to run better and use half as much gas. Hell, this thing is all natural and organic. Them Hollywood liberals would be out here throwing bags of money at us in a week. I had questions. Fuzzy and half-formed. Danny didn't give me a chance to ask them. Hop in. We're taking a ride to celebrate. I ran back to the house for a few more beers and we hit the road. The truth was, we weren't anywhere near the road most of that drive. Danny had an idea to do what he called a stress test on the critter attached to his engine. See if it could hold on. We plowed down every back road and through every muddy field we could get to. When the beer ran out, we headed back. Danny checked beneath the hood. The thing was still holding on and it had grown. Legs punctured the engine in half a dozen places, but nothing was leaking. There was a thick layer of greenish gunk where the bug and the engine connected. Danny touched the stuff. Hell, it makes its own sealant. He pinched off a bit and rolled it between his fingers. This stuff alone will probably make us a fortune. I like the sound of that. We went back in the trailer and I got a bottle of $30 sipping whiskey I'd been saving for a special occasion. When I came to, the house was empty. I staggered into the front yard, squinting against the sunlight. Danny's truck was gone. That was okay. Danny was a good one. I wasn't worried about him running off or making money without cutting me in. But him leaving did make me remember the question I'd wanted to ask last night. How did we keep the truck bugs from spreading before people paid us? I heard something above me. I turned and looked up at the trailer's roof. I heard it again, a quick series of clicks and clacks like a squirrel wearing tap shoes. I didn't like the sound one bit. My ladder was still leaning up against the side of the porch from a few weeks before when I'd nearly got up the gumption to clean the gutters. I climbed up slow and peeked my head over the edge. It was a bug, smaller than the ones on the engines, about as big as a small dog. As I watched, one of the sacks hanging close to me started to swell. I waited for it to shrink again, but it just got bigger. It burst with a wet tearing sound and out came a bundle of stick-thin antennas, dripping green slime. The thing rattled its legs on the roof and those antennas reached toward me. The damn critter scared me so bad my legs went out from under me. My ass landed hard in the dirt. And that fall saved my life. The tap shoe shuffle echoed on the roof and the thing leapt off the side right as I fell. It sailed over me. Its sacks flattened and stretched, 
looking like the scariest goddamn flying squirrel you ever saw. It landed five feet out in the yard. Despite the pain in my ass, I was up and running before the bug critter got its spindly legs up under itself. There was a rifle in the truck and a shotgun under my bed, but the hatchet was closest. I ran for the woodpile. I got hold of the hatchet's wooden handle, just as something sharp stabbed into the back of my calf. I felt more needle jabs on my thigh and lower back. My leg went dead, and I fell again. I turned as I went down and got the bug between my back and the rough, chopped cords of wood. There was a sound like a plate breaking, and my back turned warm and wet. I rolled, and some of the bug rolled with me. Most of it still lay broken on the logs. One of its legs hung from my calf. I yanked it out and screamed. Oh, God! It came loose, but took a hunk of me with it. Blood ran down my leg. The thing was still alive. The thick bunch of antennas snapped back and forth in the air. I brought the hatchet down into the middle of them and was rewarded with a meaty thunk and a burst of green blood. The thing wasn't done yet. It had at least a dozen legs and most were moving. I swung at it again, but hit the wood. The bug scrambled over the top of the woodpile and into the long grass behind it. I heard an engine coming up the drive and ran toward it. Danny, we got a problem! It was out of my mouth before I realized that it wasn't Danny's truck, but a late model Lincoln pulling up the drive. I recognized the car and knew it must be Sunday. The Reverend Archibald Snap was a big man with a big voice. The kind of fellow who could make the church rafters ring with a good word. I hadn't seen him in a few months, but he got around to everyone eventually, checking in seeing why you hadn't been to church. He got out of his Lincoln, looking like he'd just stepped from behind the pulpit, his suit coat and tie buttoned up tight despite the heat. Howdy, Reverend! I still held the hatchet, green goo smearing the blade. I moved so it was behind my leg. Lee? Didn't see you in church today. No, no, uh, it's been a while. I can't seem to get up the gumption since Shelley and the kids left. I wanted to jump into the Lincoln and scream at the preacher to get me the hell out of there. But I didn't. The bug had scared me half to death, but I could still hear Danny's voice in my head telling me about all the money we'd make. The kind of money that would get Shelly and the kids back with me like they belong. It might still happen. So the bugs were dangerous. So were deer, if you weren't prepared for them. I just needed to get in the house, grab the shotgun, and call Danny. Lee? He'd been talking for a while, but his words had only just now gotten through the fog in my brain. Do you mind if I use your bathroom? I thought that would be a pretty bad idea, and said so. Hey, you need to go, Reverend. I appreciate you coming by and all, but I'm a bit busy. I looked over my shoulder, expecting to see a bug skittering over the grass any minute. While I was looking, Reverend Snap reached out and grabbed my collar. There was something in his other hand. Something with a lot of legs. 
The Reverend had played lineman for the Hope's Rest Warriors back in high school, but I had the hatchet and was still full of fear and adrenaline. I ignored the hand on my collar and brought the axe down on the bug. It cleaved in half, and the grass was littered with green slime, bug parts, and the Reverend's hacked off fingers. The Reverend didn't make a sound. I don't know that he even felt the blade slice through his hand. He pulled me toward him by my collar and slammed his bleeding half-hand into my gut. The air whistled between my teeth, but I'd already swung the hatchet again and buried it in the side of Reverend Snap's knee. The big man of God went down like a felled tree. I hacked at the hand on my collar until the fingers loosened. Haven't seen you at church lately. You ought to drop by for the covered dish supper this Wednesday. He was on his knees swaying, the words still pouring from his lips. I stepped behind him and stared at the bunch of antenna, each one as thick as my finger. They rose just to the edge of his white collar before plunging into the skin of his neck. He started to stand, his one good leg shaking with the effort. I swung the hatchet at where the bug pierced the preacher's neck. I kept swinging, and the preacher kept moving. Each blow slowed him down a bit, like a wind-up toy coming to a stop. Fucking die! It took a good while. When it was done, I stood there covered in sweat and blood, both red and green. I stared at the bits and pieces of what had been Reverend Snap and wondered what kind of hell you ended up in for hacking up a preacher. I had a sinking feeling I wasn't going to get rich. The bug wasn't moving, but I didn't trust that it was dead. I got the lighter fluid from the grill and set fire to the mess of flesh and bug that lay on the gravel. Smoke blew over me, and I swear to God it reminded me of church barbecues when I was a kid. I dropped to my knees and vomited until I got down to the dry heaves. I tried calling Danny, but he didn't answer, so I called the sheriff's office. I stood in the kid's bedroom. I didn't have any windows, so I figured it was the safest. The shotgun was in one hand and the cell phone was in my other. Sheriff Nipper picked up, which was strange. I'd expected a deputy on a Sunday, but I'd take him. I, uh, I need to report a killing. Do you indeed? The sheriff spoke like a man who was in on a joke. Fear rose up in my belly. You, you seen Danny Stokes today, Sheriff? I did, Lee. Picked him up this morning for drunk driving. Turned out he wasn't so drunk after all. He showed me something damned interesting. Did uh, Danny visit the preacher too, or was that you, Sheriff? My legs started feeling weak, and I sat down on Little Dale's race car-shaped bed. I never miss church, Lee. You know that. Um... Reverend Snap is dead. I thought he must be. I tell you what, Lee. Why don't you just open up a window in that trailer of yours, lay down and get yourself a little shut-eye. Things don't have to go hard. I don't think so. I'm not living out the rest of my life with bug legs shoved up my ass. I guess that's your thing. 
The man's temper was a town legend, but his voice didn't rise one bit. All right, Lee. I'll be up there pretty soon. We all will. I let my phone drop to the bed. I thought about calling Shelly, but, but what if her or one of the kids picked up and told me? Just lay down, Daddy. It don't have to go hard. I was trying to figure out a way to get to them. Couldn't drive the Ford when I heard the sound of an engine in the distance. I'd have company soon. I got up. It's dark now. I boarded everything up. I didn't think I'd have time. The cars and trucks showed up hours ago. They don't seem to be in a hurry. Waiting me out, I guess. I can see them between the wood slats. Seven vehicles, lights on, engines running. Danny's truck is out there. So is the sheriff's and some of the deputies. I'm pretty sure that's the mayor sitting in the blue Escalade. I can hear the click-clack of bug legs clattering over the roof. So many it sounds like a hailstorm. It would be enough to drive me to drink if there was any beer left. I keep wishing the bugs had gotten me first instead of Danny. Danny would have had a plan. All I got is propane. I think them bugs aren't as smart as all that, even hooked up to people's brains, because Danny knows I kept about 10 tanks to heat the trailer. Those tanks are all lined up along the front wall now. I got some road flares ready to light up. Then I just fire a round off from the shotgun. I keep thinking about what the sheriff said. We're all coming. And wouldn't that be something if the people parked outside were all there were? Danny's was the first brain the bugs got a hold of. Maybe they're taking it slow. The bugs taking over the important people first. Sounds like something Danny would come up with. Shelley always said he was a little too smart for his own good. I'd like that if I could light up this propane and save the goddamn world. Shelley and the kids would be proud. The road flare lit up the trailer like the 4th of July. Look at them scramble out of the trucks. Danny must have seen the burst of light through the wooden slats on the windows. He must have remembered the propane. Thinks they can stop me. We killed the bugs. We were just waiting you out to see if they got you. Everything's okay. Don't do anything crazy. Even I'm not that stupid. They ought to run. Wouldn't matter. Not with this much propane. But that would be the smarter play. Instead, they rush the trailer. I guess the bugs do make you stupid. The door won't last long, but I don't need much time. I'm glad Shelly and the kids left. Glad there's a chance they might be safe. I guess killing Richard Petty was a blessing after all. They're almost through the door. The sheriff's in front trying to kick through the boards I nailed up. I can see Danny's face looking at me from the porch and tears come to my eyes. A board gives way beneath the sheriff's boot with a crack. Gray bugs skitter through the opening. Time's up. 
I love you, Shelly. I lay the shotgun's barrel against the side of the closest propane tank. Alright, you sons of bitches. Here comes phase two. In our final tale, we join a man signing up for a medical experiment. Normally a red flag, right? But this time there seems to be no downside. After all, what can go wrong with trying to optimize brain performance? In this tale, shared with us by author Adam Davies, the answer is plenty. After all, doesn't the concept of memory displacement sound vaguely sinister? Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Graham Rowett, Atticus Jackson, Mick Wingert, Jeff Clement, Dan Zapula, Nicole Goodnight, and Peter Lewis. So when you sign up for strange medical experiments, question everything. Pay attention to the methodology and most importantly, the ethics, even if they're promising to free your mind. I had to check that I had the address right. I found myself in a run-down industrial area, and the building looked more like an old warehouse from the outside than an exclusive private hospital paying $2,500 a week for a medical trial. An unnerving huddle of homeless bums stared vacantly at me from across the parking lot as I arrived, and I anxiously pressed the buzzer. Is this the Vandenberg Institute? There was no answer from the intercom, but the door buzzed open into a silent, deserted corridor. As I started inside, the bums began shouting something to me. I turned worriedly. Don't listen to them. A burly employee surprised me, ushering me quickly inside. Fucking degenerates! Is this the Vandenberg Institute? The memory trial, right? Yeah. It doesn't really look like a hospital. It's a specialist wing for extremely sensitive medical research. You wouldn't believe the amount of corporate espionage that goes on with these trials. It sounded like he had memorized the words. An off-putting smell of fresh paint and heavy disinfectant permeated the close air. Dr. Vikan addressed the room. Displacing memory will be the key to unlocking the true potential of the human brain. I'd like to welcome you all to the state-of-the-art Vandenberg Institute, and thank you all for joining this 12-week trial program. I looked around at the volunteers for the trial. Just three others. A couple of young guys, mid to late 20s, 
and a crazy-looking old guy. He must have been at least 70. Let me first explain the concept of displaced memory by asking you a question. Dr. Vikan pointed at me. What's your parents' phone number? I don't know. It's programmed in my cell phone. A wide, brilliantly white smile spread across Vikan's face. Exactly, my boy. You have displaced the memory function for phone number recall to your phone. You have correctly convinced your brain that it is a non-essential function better performed by a simple piece of technology, simply because your phone can do so much more with that number than you can. It can dial it and it can synchronize other linked pieces of information such as email addresses and the like. You have increased the capacity of your brain to unlock more powerful, higher-level functions, such as critical thought and evaluation, imagination even, by outsourcing the lower functions of simple factual recall. Why store information in your brain when a computer is much better suited to the task? A computer cannot imagine and cannot dream, which is what your brain should be for. I nodded, and so did the rest of the room. The concept seemed to make a lot of sense, and my mind wandered as Vikan went on to explain the basics of the program. The irony of me being involved in a medical trial about memory made me laugh, since I couldn't even remember where I'd seen the advertisement. The pay was certainly fantastic, but I couldn't seem to get excited by the money. The last 22 years of my life just seemed like a blur. Too many drugs and too much partying had left the whole time just a confused jumble. I was here to unlock my mind, to discover who the real me was, and to try to work out what I wanted to do with my life. Drift aimlessly didn't seem like much of a plan. I pulled my thoughts back as Dr. Vikan seemed to be wrapping up, and the burly orderlies were now showing the volunteers around the trial site. It was a simple layout, complete with a communal zone at one end of the corridor. A common room with a kitchen came from the corridor, as well as four doors leading off to each of the trialists' bedrooms. Along the length of the corridor were various treatment rooms, containing computers and monitoring equipment, some of which were restricted access. The rest of day one was orientation, acclimatization, and administration. I filled out forms, medical questionnaires, family history, personality tests, and memory baseline tests. We need to know how your mind performs to create a baseline for the trial. I also met my three fellow trialists. Kyle was 27 and wanted to be a writer. Gary was 32 but looked younger than Kyle, and he was an ex-firefighter who had to quit because of a knee injury. Both of those guys seemed decent. Harold was different because he was so much older than the rest of us and had a serious, almost angry demeanor. He was a veteran but wasn't eager to disclose what tour of duty he'd completed. Exhausted by the end of day one and looking forward to some sleep, I learned something that I wasn't happy about. There was a total technology ban in the communal zone for the duration of the 12-week trial. Something about no external stimulus to help validate the evidence. No TV, no cell phones, no internet access. I was not impressed, but I took the opportunity to pick up a random paperback from the small shelf in his room. It turned out to be Dune by Frank Herbert. Book in hand, I ran into Gary while heading to my room. Don't you think it's strange that it's all guys? What? The medical team. Hmm. Hadn't thought about it. 
Most of them look like nightclub bouncers as well. I could understand if they were orderlies in a mental hospital, but here? Maybe this is a mental hospital, and you're just imagining that this is a well-paid trial. <laughs> it had a strange feeling of perpetual night, despite, or perhaps because of, the fluorescent tube lighting. The view was the parking lot, where the vagrants had been that morning. They were gone now, just some discarded rags to mark their presence. That and a scrawled message in red on the wall. Don't listen. In the dim light of the lot, it was hard to be sure, but the rags they had left looked like hospital gowns. This trial is going to be difficult for you at times. You'll wonder what is going on, and you'll want to quit. It will tax you physically, mentally, and emotionally. Even so, always remember that you are furthering the evolution of the human race. It will take time. You will feel your memory degrade quickly as you increasingly adopt the mind-clearing techniques we will teach. But you will not feel any of the benefits of enhanced cognitive function until sometime after the eighth week. You must free your mind to evolve to that point. Dr. Vikan then outlined the program. I will try to keep it simple. You will memorize facts and then problem solve. Next, you will displace facts, meaning that you will move the knowledge to a computer and then actively forget it. When you then problem solve again, more of your brain will be available. This is how we will unlock the latent power of your mind. Preparation for the memory and cognitive tests started with a daily yoga regime, followed by meditation. We need to get you into the habit of clearing and focusing your mind. Yoga was done together, meditation alone. A deep, soothing and languid voice taking me deeper into relaxation. Then, onto the memory tasks. After the first round of tasks came the displacement. This is where the injections come in. The drugs administered will block the formation of short-term memories, rather like pharmaceutical-grade rohypnol. This will help you to clear the recently memorized facts from the exercise, which in turn will help prevent your brain from circumnavigating the recall displacement. We need to help you to forget things, permanently. This became the routine, and it was grueling. There were three daily cycles, and Vikan's warning about the difficulty quickly rung true. I hated it. The yoga was intense and torturous, and my brain was too wired to settle into the meditation. The memory exercises started off okay, but they quickly became impossibly difficult for me. The displacement and problem-solving exercises were outright exhausting, almost to the point of being physically painful. I went to bed each night, shattered with blinding headaches, my confidence in tatters given how badly I'd performed on the problem-solving tasks. Then there were the drugs. Ah yes, those sweet injections to help me forget. Forgetting seemed to be the only thing I was good at, and I felt like I had been forgetting something my whole life. The harder I tried to focus on my life before the start of the trial, the more it eluded my grasp. What was it that I did before I came here? The building was old, and at night, constant whispering sounds came from the pipes that I hadn't noticed at first. I started to have vivid dreams about spiders and moths. And one night of my dream, I pulled off their legs and wings and squashed them between my fingers. 
The next night, they got their revenge, crawling into my throat and eyes, biting and laying eggs. I awoke that morning with a swollen tongue and some sort of rash on my genitals. The doctor said I was just having an allergic reaction to something and that it was nothing to worry about. I slept erratically, and as the trial progressed, things began to play on my mind. The whispering of the pipes amplified in the eerie silence of the night. And if I strained my hearing, I could convince myself I could make out words. I got up one night to try to see if someone could fix the damn pipe work, since my maddening quest for sleep was making the whispering noise feel like it was taking over my mind. In the dark corridor, I saw one of the medical staff coming out of one of the restricted doors. He wore a tight vest and sported crude tattoos on his muscled arms. He quickly closed the doors, but I caught glimpses of caged animals in the room. And then he spotted me and came toward me. You can't be here. I'm sorry. Can something be done about the noises from the pipes, man? Get the fuck back to your room. V-Con will kill me if he finds out you've been in here. He shoved me back through the open doorway. I was shaken by his aggression. The whispering pipes forgotten in my adrenaline rush. It continued like this for the first four weeks. The intensity of the cycles was increasing. Yoga got harder, the periods of meditation got longer, and the recall activities got harder. The doses of drugs got higher, and the mental tasks got more complex. My mood spiraled as the difficulty increased. I would find myself reading the same chapter of my book over and over again, but the words never sank in. Stranger still was that the book was no longer Dune, yet I had no recollection of swapping it for the island of Dr. Moreau. At night, I continued to dream. Terrible, haunting dreams of dogs tearing apart litters of kittens. In the first dream, I wept as I fed one of them into the mad animal's cages. But by the fifth dream, I was laughing as I did it. One morning when I woke, there were flecks of blood in my sink. Rusty water. Probably what's making the pipes noisy. The orderly didn't even look in the sink when I reported it. I wanted to talk to the others about it, but I was worried they would throw me off the trial for cracking under the pressure, since everybody else seemed to be bearing up fine. They were only dreams after all, and I really needed the money, but for what, I could no longer remember. At the start of the fifth week, Dr. Fakan sat down with me. How are you feeling, Jake? You look troubled. I... I I don't think I can do this anymore. You know, Jake, that your results are the most outstanding, the most extraordinary, don't you? What? Oh, yes, Jake. The others might be bearing up a little better than you to the rigors of the process, but it's you that really interests me. We're going to progress onto the second stage of the process, starting today. And that's where I really expect you to shine. How can that be? I do so badly on the tasks compared to the others. Let me tell you a secret, Jake. I won't be paying any attention to the results until week eight. This first stage is about acquiring the skills to forget what you already know. And you are, by some considerable distance, the best at this. By week eight, I am confident you will have trained your mind to become an empty vessel. 
And that is when you will unlock your true potential. I'm very excited for you, Jake. But you must free your mind of this nonsense about giving up the trial. Can you do that, Jake? Can you help unlock the future of the human brain with me? Yes. Of course. I was taken aback by this unexpected compliment and the sincerity of the doctor's appeal. It felt like the first compliment, the first kindness I had received in my whole life. Later that morning, Dr. Vakan addressed the whole group. Today marks an important first step into phase two of the program. Up to this point, we have been trying and succeeding in displacing new and recently formed memories. From here onwards, we will be using the techniques you have learned to displace existing long-term memories. He smiled broadly at the room. Let's start with something very simple. Your ATM card pin number. Dr. Vakan's promises started to come true. I would walk into a room and not remember why I went there. Or I would start a conversation with Kyle and just trail off. The reason for talking to him lost to me. The days flowed with a cruel insistence. The recall exercises were, in theory, much simpler now. Things like my friends' and family's birthdays, then their telephone numbers, then addresses, and then computer passwords. Yet these memories were so deeply rooted that tearing them out felt like uprooting a part of my soul. The world had shrunk to the size of the trial. Was there even a world out there anymore? I could barely remember anything of my pre-trial life. The drugs helped. Oh lord, did the drugs help. The medication changed and the doses upped significantly. I swam in a constant fog. Previously, the evenings had been a brief respite, but now the drugs needed cycling through the evening, so the nurses would come into the residential wing at four-hour intervals through the night. Sleep deprivation was the newest torture added to the mix, and I sometimes glimpsed a shadowy figure in my peripheral vision as I teetered on the cusp of sleep. A new recurring dream happened, too. The memory of it was clearer than the others, and it was like watching a film scene shot through my eyes. I was in a large brick-walled area, a basement or a warehouse, maybe. In front of me was a girl, her features blurred and indistinct, with blood and her pleading sobs all too clear. Please stop it. He's making you do this, please. Matthew, don't listen. The whispering voice was also clearer now, and it wasn't coming from the pipes. It came from inside my head, urging me to do more to her. No, don't listen! I woke, shivering and breathless. But worst of all, I was painfully aroused. I alternated between insomnia and coma-like sleep, so deep that rousing from it brought on panic attacks. On my insomnia nights... I tossed and turned, having strange waking dreams filled with whispers. One night, I got out of bed to stretch my legs and wandered into the common room. We were required to stay in our rooms after 10 p.m., but I needed a change of scenery. I could see through the circular glass door pane into Harold's room. One of the nurses was in there, one I hadn't seen before. He was thin, which made him stand out against his burly colleagues. 
lank, greasy black hair came down to his shoulders, and he almost looked out of place. I watched for a moment, interested in observing the drug administration procedure as a third party, rather than as the all-too-willing recipient. There were no drugs. Instead, he put his mouth close to the sleeping Harold's ear and whispered. I must have watched for three or four minutes before he looked up and saw me. He smiled and strolled casually out of Harold's room. Naughty, naughty. Back to your room. His voice was a jarring shock, so deep and smooth and resonant, a complete juxtaposition to his dirty and disheveled appearance. I felt like I knew that voice, and when it spoke, I had to obey. I'm sorry. I was just stretching my legs. I couldn't sleep. I backed away to my room. As I lay down and tried to get back to sleep, it hit me where I knew his voice from. His was the meditation voice from the recordings. Time was a forgotten concept, so I can only guess when I first saw her. She was sitting in the residential common zone, a pretty brunette around my age curled up in one of the chairs. Hey Jake, how was it today? What? Who are you? She looked at me bemused. Uh, Beth? Jeez, they must have cranked up the drugs on you today. I hurried over to the kitchen where Kyle was making a drink. Kyle, seriously, who's that girl? Kyle looked at me concerned and then laughed. (laughs) Oh, I get it. You flirt with her relentlessly for six weeks, and now it's who is she? Is she immune to your charms, buddy? Give you the big brush off? Kyle, I'm being deadly serious. I have no idea who that girl is, and I've never seen her before in my life. I was manic, rubbing my pounding head anxiously. Kyle's expression turned to one of worry. Dude, sit down. Let me call Dr. Vikan and get you checked out. You look really pale. I need to fucking sit down. Who the fuck is that girl? Beth came to the door. Jake, are you okay? Keep away from me. I pushed past her into the common room. That was when it hit me like a sledgehammer. There were five bedroom doors leading out of the common room, where there had previously been four. (laughs) Dr. Vakan laughed when I told him about Beth. That's wonderful, Jake. This is not only entirely in the scope of the anticipated side effects of the trial. This is actually exactly what we are looking for. Complete memory displacement of a midterm established memory. Jake, this is a real breakthrough. I stared at him, dumbfounded. I'm losing my mind. Jake, let me show you something. He tapped away at his tablet and brought up video footage. The timestamp was from that morning. It was me in a room with Dr. Vikan. Okay, Jake. Today we're going to try something exceedingly difficult. We're going to try and create a displacement for an entire person. It would be too difficult to do this with someone you have known all your life. But to test its efficacy, we need to do it with someone you have a degree of closeness, a degree of emotional attachment to. We're going to have a try and displace your memory of one of your fellow tribalists. Let's use Beth, shall we? 
I clearly blush on the video. My hands went to my head and I wept. I don't know if they were tears of sadness, fear, or joy. I didn't seem to know anything anymore. But there were four doors, not five. If Beth has been here all the time, how would I not have seen the door? Jake, we've been working on memory displacement for weeks now. It shouldn't come as a surprise to you that you were able to forget both Beth and the associated details of her presence so well. Memory is only ever a snapshot at a moment in time, changeable, moldable. It really is one of the least accurate, least reliable brain functions. I sat bewildered. Could it really be the case that I'd forgotten an entire person's existence? This no longer seemed like what I had signed up for, but what I had signed up for no longer seemed clear or important. I needed answers. Who is the new nurse? The long-haired guy who gives the medication at night? The one who does the meditation recordings? There are no new nurses. The meditation recordings are made professionally to my specification and use a female voice. He took extensive notes, dismissing my mistake as a side effect of the trial. I could see the deception in his eyes. Vakan gave me a sedative. It will all feel better after some rest, Jake. It didn't feel any better, but I cared less about it come morning. Beth looked upset, sat alone at breakfast reading a book and making some notes on a pad. I went over to talk to her. Um... Mind if I sit with you for breakfast? Sure. She put down her book and pencil. Look, about yesterday. I'm sorry about... Well, I'm just sorry for being a dick. It's fine. Her face and tone brightened noticeably. This whole program is crazy. Messes with your head. We chatted a while over breakfast, and it was surreal. I had no recollection of ever meeting her before, and knew nothing about her, yet she chatted away to me as if we were fast friends. As I got up to leave for the morning's torture, she put her hand on my wrist. As a child, did you ever do coin rubbing? She stared intensely into my eyes, her voice barely above a whisper. Um... Sure. She smiled brightly, her voice raising back to normal pitch. Yeah, it's a great book. You should check it out. She put her book back on the shelf with exaggerated slowness, turning her head to give me a meaningful look. That evening, after ensuring no one was looking, I retrieved the book from the shelf. Inside was the notepad Beth had been writing on. I could clearly see heavy indents in the paper beneath, and she'd been writing something with exaggerated force. I took it into my room and shaded the page lightly with a pencil. And my already fragile mind recoiled at the message. Trust no one, least of all yourself. It's all lies. Your name is Matthew, not Jake. The whispers in my dreams are louder now. 
I can hear the voice so clearly. His voice. Do it to her again. I'm powerless to resist, despite the revulsion I feel at her scream and the atrocities I must perform. Now hold still. The voice commands me and I'm lying down. Here's a metal trolley by the bed with hammers, saws, scalpels, and pliers. It registered, before my mind even realized I was awake, that something was wrong. My tongue rolled over the familiar landscape of my teeth, and I could tell that some were missing. My gums were raw and painfully swollen, and we could all hear Beth crying in the shower. She stayed in for 40 minutes. It seemed to be limping when she came out. She winced when she sat down, but none of us seemed to care. I don't know if it was the same day or a month later, but suddenly I became aware I was in Vikan's office. The briefest moment of clarity and energy spurred me on. What the fuck are you doing to us? Vikan looked at me amused. I'm unlocking the power of your mind, Jake. You pulled my fucking teeth out! And God only knows what terrible things you did to Beth. What God? It wasn't me who did terrible things to Beth, was it, Jake? Is Beth even real? Maybe she is just a fantasy of yours, Jake. Your dream girl brought to life by your mind. What does it say about you that you would do such awful things to your dream girl so willingly and so well? I, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw her this morning. I, I talked to her. Did you? Just a few short weeks ago, you were certain she didn't exist. The conundrum of recall is this. The past is all a memory, yours to create and change at will. You're recalling these events to me now, and the date is Friday the 13th of July in 2018. In your mind, you think you have been aware of this Beth for some weeks now. Who's to say she is real? Who's to say any of this even existed yesterday? We can seldom rely on our memories. The mind is a fickle, unreliable, and mischievous thing. He beamed wickedly. Unreliable, like my name not really being Jake. I didn't care now if I was kicked off the trial. The money seemed scant reward for the rabbit hole of deception and insanity I could feel myself being drawn down. Vicon sat for a moment, smile gone, regarding me. Your real name is Matthew. Part of the trial involved replacing a deeply rooted, long-term memory. The most deeply rooted, in fact. Your very identity. The smile returned. Replace? What do you mean? I thought this was about forgetting memories, not replacing them. Forgetting is just replacing something with nothing. We replace and reshape our memories all the time, Matthew. Enough. This, uh, this is ridiculous. It, insane. I want to leave the trial. Immediately. I stood, pushing my chair aside. Vakan never stopped smiling. Of course, Matthew, if that's your wish. Simply collect your things and leave. I will ask one of the orderlies to escort you. You'll still be paid for your time on the trial so far. That, that's it? I can just walk away? 
Of course. This isn't a prison, Matthew. You're here of your own free will. Where will you go? Home. That sounds lovely. Tell me, Matthew. Where is home? His head was cocked expectantly. His smile at once smug and terrible. I didn't know. My world collapsed around me. There were vague sensations, feelings that the concept of home brought about, but no detail, no actual memory of where home might be. My heart raced and my head span. I fell to my knees and retched up vomit, bile, and blood. I heard the Khan's voice as I knelt there. Besides, you're deep in your mind now, Matthew. We don't really need you to be physically here to finish the trial. Then, another voice. The meditation man's, coming from inside my head. Back to your room, lover boy. Rest up. You've got a busy night ahead of you. I had to end this. Get them out of my head. Too late, I now understood the scrawled warning I'd seen that first day. Don't listen. I grabbed my own ears, twisting and wrenching with the last strength left to me. I felt the flesh and cartilage tear, blood gushing from the ruined sides of my head. I felt an insane ecstasy come over me as I held up my torn-off ears to them. My own wet, red triumph. Don't listen, I try to say. But I black out from the searing agony. The dreams were more vivid that night than ever before. The screaming, begging voice was less distinct. I heard it as background noise. Not even a noise, simply a vibration rather than words. It was only his voice I heard, driving me on from one cruel depravity to the next. Her face was clear, though. Beth's face. Her face was clear, and so was the blood. Blood and worse. In the darkness of the void, I hear the click of a recorder, and then a voice. I recognize it, but I can't seem to find the name of the person it belongs to. Group 7 was interesting. Subject 25 in particular. The group did not produce the prescience phenomena seen in trial groups 5 and 6. We are no closer to the breakthroughs I expected to make on cognitive function and capacity, but remarkable findings of a psychosomatic nature were made. Pain tolerance and pain masking levels were extraordinarily high. The ability to displace and bypass both sexual and violence-oriented inhibitions and controls were pushed to staggering new levels. I'm confident that General Briggs will agree the findings have a range of applications in military intelligence, and the techniques used are highly scalable. The recording clicks off. A new voice now. What shall we do with them, boss? They're ruined. Dump all five of them. Then pack up the Institute. We're relocating to different premises. Isn't it easier to kill them? Dead bodies raise questions. 
No one cares about the few more homeless crazies on the streets. No one will even notice them. I'm cold. I'm outdoors and it's raining. The world is silent. I hear. I can hear nothing. But I feel pain. I see the words don't listen scrawled on the wall behind me in faded red. I try to think about who I am and why I'm here, but I don't know the answer to either of those questions. I don't know the answers to any questions. There's a girl here, too. She seems familiar, but I I don't know her name. My first thought is that she might be pretty with both eyes. She's rocking and muttering. I can't hear what she's saying, but reading her lips, it looks like stop. Don't listen. Stop. Don't listen. Please stop. The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.